Hello, listeners. It's me, Jinx Monsoon, here with another new episode of Hi, Jinx, with me, Jinx Monsoon. Today, my guest is a close personal friend and my drag mother, Peaches Christ. And we talk all about her work as a writer, director, cult leader, and haunted house curator. And we also talk about her masterpiece film, all about evil. So hunker down and sink your teeth into some new hijinks. Forever. Dog. Hello everyone, I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today, we are joined by drag queen, writer, director, producer, legend, and horror movie enthusiast, it's Peaches Christ. Hi, Peaches. Hi, Jinx. <laughs> How are you doing today, Peaches? Oh, I'm doing really good, actually. Yeah, uh, I feel like today the sun is shining in San Francisco and um, this life is good. <laughs> we have known each other for quite some time now. Um, would you like to tell the story of how we first met? And then I'll pepper in my own little details. <laughs> well, I believe it was because you were having sex with my ex-boyfriend. <laughs> that <I'm> never not... <laughs> happened! <laughs> <laughs> well, well, <laughs> this is my version of the story. So I um, uh, live in San Francisco, of course. And, you know, I actually been going to uh, Seattle quite a bit to perform. It was one of the first cities outside of San Francisco that I ever really... Um, uh, performed in. And, um, so needless to say, I had a relationship and we broke up and it was, uh, around the time that I was shooting my movie all about evil and he moved to Seattle. Uh, and I have, I have to say this, uh, while our breakup was, you know, not necessarily the friendliest, I always admired his taste. And, (laughs) and that was one of the things that, you know, we connected on was taste. Uh, especially our taste for movies and music. And I remember him contacting me after months of not speaking, you know, that sort of ice period after a breakup and him reaching out to me and being like, Hey, I just thought you should know there's this brilliant drag queen in Seattle that you should be aware of. You know, her name is (laughs) Jinx Monsoon. And, you know, I've been hanging out with her. uh, And I just think she's so talented. And I know that you would think she was talented. So anyways, I was still maybe mad at him. So I, I was kind of like, who the fuck is this bitch? You know? <laughs> and that was years before Drag Race <laughs> and years before um, our first collaboration. Yeah. Um, but yeah, our uh, you were in my world well before that as well. Um, I think I first discovered you on YouTube when I was a teenager. Uh, <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> um, and I watched uh, some uh, Peaches Christ 
tour of a, a, of an old video shop, if people remember those, and you were kind of suggesting your favorite um, queer adjacent horror films, and that was so long ago. And you were a full grown adult, and I was <laughs> a child watching you on YouTube. <laughs> Well, I have to say one thing I do, because we've worked together for so long and we've done so many shows together. And of course, our first big collaboration was uh, our Grey Garden show, which we've done since a lot. Um, I did, before you got on Drag Race, I was more and more aware of you. And because I have a foot in the Seattle scene and, you know, was very close with, you know, Sylvia and uh, other performers there um i knew that andrew was right you were very very talented <laughs> and i uh you know admired you and i also i also actually did some shows that binda lacrim was in you never were in any of those old t-shack shows uh that i was in now i know you did perform when hecklina brought her club up there i just it just was that uh it wasn't the same night that i was performing yeah um, but I met Benda LaCrim as well. And I remember thinking she was a bitch too, uh, because, you know, I came from such a grungy, rotten world of drag, right? And we were doing a Halloween party at, uh, God, do you remember that place, Chop Suey? Yeah, that was actually, yeah. it must have been like a year later because um, how I first met and worked with Hecklina and uh, how this whole story came to be is that Hecklina was doing T-Shack in Seattle for Halloween. Dela couldn't do it, so she recommended me to fill in for her. And um, that that really was one of the big things that in conjunction with doing Sylvia Oste for Moore's bacon strip every month solid for a year. That was kind of how I began in the Seattle drag scene because I was a drag queen in Portland as a teenager, moved up to Seattle for college and I was there for four years, but not able to do any work because my college was all encompassing and took up my entire life. So, um, we could have met that night, but I guess you Maybe. decided decided not to do the gig. <laughs> I guess not. But I, what's funny about, and I think you and I would have connected more quickly. Um, hopefully, Dela won't listen to this. Although I've told her this, uh, you know, part, and this this actually may be more offensive to you. Uh, oh my gosh! <laughs> I, I, I I remember looking at Dela and being like, "Oh, she's a polished pageant queen," and because <laughs> she, at a young age, I mean, way back then, she looked flawless like her makeup was flawless the costume was flawless she looked like she'd been doing drag for decades right now she was i didn't realize how young she was and so i remember looking at her and being like "Ugh," you know uh just because probably because i was insecure you know and uh and then i watched her perform and i thought she was amazing and i was co-hosting the show with hecklina and so she came off stage and I went over to her and I was like, wow, you're really incredible. And she kind of melted like the whole, you know, <laughs> facade of confidence, like kind of fell apart. And she was so sweet and so lovely. And, um, you know, I, I remember I prejudged her because she looked flawless. And I, I don't think that would have <laughs> happened in our case but and based you know, on your earlier looks, you know. And it's so funny because I think of all the times I was prejudged because I wasn't polished. And, and you right. know, the sword cuts both ways. Um, <laughs> Touche. I mean, that absolutely, uh, that's absolutely true. And, you you know, you, you uh, obviously... You, you and I did not really truly meet until after Drag Race. I mean, yeah. as far as really sitting down and talking, which is strange to me. And you 
uh, on the show, you know, I, I watched the show. I was entertained by the show. Um, I'd already, you know, worked with um, Sharon Needles after Sharon had had won. And I had kind of made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to work with um, drag queens just because they were famous or just because they were on a TV show, even way back then. And um, and I, I feel like I've really um, stuck to that promise because, you know, you really you and Sharon really helped set the standard for me to say, I'm going to work with people who inspire me and who I think are, you know, amazing and would fit into this world and who I want to do projects with. And, you know, obviously after watching your Snatch Game, it it was clear to me that, you know, I, I wanted to do Grey Gardens with you, a show I'd always wanted to do, but never felt like I could ever pull it off because who the hell is going to play Little Edie? And, you know, the rest is kind of history because we did that show and we've been working together ever since. Yeah. And and it's been a wonderful union, I must say. I, I think we've we've collaborated on some really great things and we've taken shows that started out as a, like a one weekend affair and taken them on um, tour through the UK and taken them to residencies in other locations and turned something that could have just been a frivolous little cabaret show into a full blown drag production, you know, like a, a drag play, you know, in, in line with the West End or or Broadway, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, but, um, maybe I, I have to say I, I'm looking at all these photos of um, the show that uh, Anna Flactic and, you know, Holly Stars, oh, yeah. uh, you know, that they're doing in the West End. And I am a little bit jealous because, my God, they, they, that's a big budget show. Like they've they've got beautiful sets and amazing costumes. It's like, you know. Uh, I, maybe, well, you know what though? I'll say this. I think our shows with their, you know, cheap sets and stuff, you know, th there's a certain <laughs> charm. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> and that. you know, there's a mantra I've been using whenever I see something where I'm like, oh, that looks amazing. And maybe a little bit of jealousy squeaks in and I'm like, oh, I wish I was doing that production or I wish I was getting to produce a show on the West End. I just remind myself my mantra, a step forward for one of us is a step forward for all of us. As long <laughs> as long as some queens are getting, um, you know, the the appropriate amount of praise and and getting the the right resources put behind them to do the things we know we're capable of, then I think that opens the door for everyone. So that's how I that's how I um silence my jealousy monster sometimes i want to ask <laughs> you, you keep you keep telling yourself that <laughs> i want to ask um you you mentioned like um you said early on i am not going to work with a queen just because she's famous but i'm going to reserve that for queens that fit into the world that you created. Do you think you felt backlash from other queens in the old guard when you started um, welcoming in some mainstream talent into your otherwise kind of DIY, um, keep it in the family uh, style of drag production? 
That's so funny. I guess in a way, maybe you could answer that question better than me because you would have been in the the sort of the scorn, you know, position. So did you feel welcomed into our oh, world? Absolutely. And I think I think part of that is the way that you curate things. You know, I, I never felt like if anything, I came into my first production with you thinking I have a lot to prove. These people have created something really amazing that has been, you know, kind of protected and guarded by the San Francisco drag community and your island of misfit toys that help you put on your shows. You know, I didn't want to come in and let anyone down when I thought it was such a special thing to be invited into. You coined the term that I now use a lot, which is um, you said you're part of the old guard of drag. And the way I describe this is the queens who made it as big as you could possibly make it before there was a TV show celebrating drag. And those queens, you you legendary queens and the old guard of drag, you're still working. You're still um, doing everything you were doing before Drag Race. And now I think there's an extra appreci- appreciation and a, a special reverence for the old guard of drag um, f- to those true drag fans out there. <laughs> so, OK, I'm glad that you I'm glad that you felt that way, because I think that the cast and crew Um, were of the same mindset that I was, where we were fans of the people together that we were inviting. And we felt like, like obviously when Sharon or you showed up or Bob um, or, you know, a a bunch of people, well, Bob, you know, as you know, we worked with Bob before she was on Drag Race and, you know, it, it felt very natural. It was like, oh yeah, if we were in the same city, these are people that we would naturally be doing shows with. Like there was, there was definitely a natural fit. And then the few times that maybe someone wasn't as strong of a fit and I I won't, I won't, you know, go, go, and, and it never happened very dramatically, but I always felt more bad for them because they were in that, that high pressure situation. And, you know, maybe they didn't, um, have the th- sort of theater or comedy or, you know, cabaret experience to sort of, you know, um, deal with one of our shows because our, our shows are so um, thrown together at the 11th hour. I mean, people don't realize that we perform for literally, you know, a couple thousand people in one day and we've had three days of rehearsal, yeah. you know, like that's it. And in and, and three days of rehearsal where the rehearsals are really only three or four hours a day. It's not like we're putting in 12 hour days, yeah. right? So these things are totally thrown together, which means you kind of want to come from a less polished background where <laughs> yeah. you've had to, you know, think on your feet and you're used to, you know, disasters happening on stage. And in many ways, the San Francisco audience and probably the audiences we've cultivated other places now appreciate that that's part of our show. You know, yeah. they're never flawless. Um, and and that to me is like that is the spirit of a drag production versus like um, a a big budget, high scale production Um, and not saying that the two can't come in harmony together, but there's something that feels so unique to drag. And you were talking about three hour rehearsals. That's because most drag performers 
You know, drag is not their only source of income. Drag is not the only thing they have going on in their lives, but it's something they're passionate about. So they make the time for it. But that normally means, you know, you're asking a bunch of people to come together with a shared passion and really put in the hours, whatever hours we can scrape together as a group and then put on something spectacular that was only produced because everyone was passionate about doing it. Right. And like no one, no one, no one really was there because they were paying the bills. Right. Like yeah. it was a lot of work. And, and, you know, it was, you know, we all, sometimes in the early days, especially barely made, you know, our money back. And then often, I, I guess in the early days and still sometimes today, you know, we would lose money. So, it, you know, the entertainment business is a really tough business. There's no stability um, and it's stressful. But I wanted to say while, while thinking about, what your question was Mm -hmm. and how I'm hoping that you were accepted into our world. And that I think most (laughs) I'm, I'm getting the vibe of what you're asking. And I'll say that that maybe wasn't the experience in Peaches Christ Productions. However, uh, where I've noticed it, and I think you, you, you know, this to be true a little more so is in places like Provincetown where, you know, you and I had the, the benefit of being able to go, but it's a very, uh, protected guard of performers and performance styles and a town that's very well protected. And um, I think you and I in Provincetown were actually pretty well embraced, you know, it, you know, and you were there before I was. And, you know, my feeling was that that we were pretty well embraced. I mean, I'm sure there were some people that maybe, you know, were like, who the hell are, are these people or who are they? <laughs> um, but my favorite Provincetown story, which I'm not going to say who it was, uh, <laughs> who the queen was, but let's say an older queen who'd been working in Provincetown for uh, many, many, many years was performing at the same venue that Trixie Mattel was performing at when mm, mm, uh, mm-hmm. Trixie and I... Trixie and I were roommates and I'll never forget this story where Trixie was doing a show. No, this stage was so small that Trixie had to get ready behind the curtain. Her dressing room was behind the curtain on, you know, so that while the show was happening, you could not leave your dressing room because there was a performer on the other side of a curtain. So Trixie's putting on her face. I mean, she came home that night. You know this story. She came home that night wrecked. And I'm like, what (laughs) happened? And she tells this story, which I love. I love it. So she's she's putting on her makeup. She's putting on her face and she's sitting, you know, shirtless. And this performer on stage who has a very small house and had had small houses for a lot of the nights of the summer is saying to a fairly uh, small audience, thank you so much for choosing to see a real talent. You know, thank you for seeing a, you know, choosing to see a, a legendary performer. You know, and Trixie's listening, but she's putting on her face. And then the person says, you know, uh, these RuPaul bitches, they, you know, they, cause it wasn't just Trixie uh, performing at this venue. It was also, uh, I think Raja. Um, and, and so this, this entertainer kind of loses her mind on stage. Right. And it's like, it's like, <laughs> it's like directing her ear uh, at Trixie and, and Raja, but Trixie's the one who's sitting five feet away, you know, on the other side of a curtain. And then she goes on to say, I mean, you could have bought tickets to see that bitch Trixie Mattel, you know, uh, but, you know, I mean, we all know how well she did on Drag Race that, you know, first time around. And she just got back from filming another one, which, you know, oh, of course she was wasn't not supposed public. to stay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, wasn't her business to say. And um, and then she says, and I know the listening audience is going to uh, be very shocked by this because it was very, very <laughs> shocking. Uh, then she says, do you want to see the bitch? She's right here. <laughs> oh, God. 
And she proceeds to pull back the curtain. And Trixie then is looking out at the audience. And Trixie's in half a face of makeup, no, you know, no shirt on, looking at this person's audience who's just sort of staring back at her like, oh, yeah, there she is. And then the, the entertainer dropped the curtain and then continued to do her show. So I do think there is there is that thing that you're getting at, right? Where some of the old guard don't really appreciate you reality TV girls, you know? Um, but I, I actually felt, well, you know, I was really a fan of the show from the beginning. So I enjoyed it. I actually watched it. You know, a lot of the, the old guard, I mean, and you know this because you've, you've been around long enough to know that, 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 that there's you know, a bunch of people who just didn't even watch it. They didn't even want to watch it, you know? Um, whereas I really enjoyed RuPaul's Drag Race. And, you know, I, I was a fan of the show and I had favorites and I was rooting for people. So it was kind of natural. But I'm also a cult movie queen. And I look at early Drag Race as very similar. It was a very much a cult experience. Like you as Jinx Monsoon have a cult following. You know, Sharon had a cult following. Latrice has a cult following. And, you know, I think the cult nature of the show, it, it was very natural for me then to write shows that played to not just the cult of Grey Gardens, but also the cult of Jinx Monsoon, right? And so I actually enjoyed it a lot, yeah. you know? I, yeah, I, and I think we have gotten good at acknowledging that Drag Race is just one part of drag. And I think that the true drag fans out there, and like, you know, I I have room for all types of drag fans out there. You know, everyone's allowed to participate in the drag world as much as they want to. So if you're just a fan of Drag Race and that's how you get into drag, that's totally great. There's nothing wrong with that. But um, we have gotten better at acknowledging the fact that before there was Drag Race, before there were world-famous drag queens, there are countless drag communities around the world delivering really wonderful art. And if you love drag... You know, you should also be checking out the drag in your areas and supporting local queens and supporting the legends and making sure that your drag education doesn't begin and end with drag race. And that's all I'll say, you know, because everyone's allowed to find their own way into it. Um, and and but... you're right. I mean, <laughs> you are right that any drag queen who doesn't think that they've benefited from the popularity of drag race is just kidding themselves. You know, yeah. I mean, all of us have benefited. All oh. of us. Uh who perform. I mean, I remember going to the first drag con uh, with Coco Peru and World of Wonder was wonderful. They went out of their way to feature me, Bunny, Coco Peru. Like if you look back at that first drag con, they went out of their way to highlight us, you know, ahead of the marketing they were doing for the Rue girls. So I will say that like to, to for me to turn around and be bitter because this this popular show turned this art form that I love so much into something that is very, very, very popular. And you you might hear me say sometimes, like, it's the pumpkin latte of drag culture, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> I say it with a critical eye, but also with love and gratitude. You know, you it can do of, both, you know? Yeah, it kind of sounds like you're saying a step forward for one of us is a step forward <laughs> for all of us. Um, Touche. <laughs> and I, you know, I have special appreciation for all of it because I really did 
start in the most humblest of beginnings. I started at age 15 in, in drag bars, and I always describe it as crawling on my hands and knees to get an ounce of uh, respect and, <laughs> you know, um, adoration for the drag that I was creating. But that's drag to me. I mean, if, if there's no, like, if there's no turmoil, if there's no, like, hardship, then um, then how can you call it drag? I feel like well, drag has to have some amount of, like, working your ass off for nothing um, because drag is not something you do if you're not passionate, I think. That's where we see a new interesting possible phenomenon where you've got the old RuPaul Drag Race girls who actually got on the show before they grew up with something called Drag Race looking at the new RuPaul's Drag Race girls who are completely informed by Drag Race, some of whom go on the show and proudly broadcast that they've only been doing drag for a year or less, right? So people like you actually now know what it feels like to be in my seat, <laughs> it's right? It's very like, generational, yes. Yeah. And, I, and the way I look at that is that must be a sign of progress, you know? And in the same way you said, like, you could choose to be bitter about it or you could choose to embrace the benefits of it. I think of that as a sign of progress. Like, if we are not working hard to create a better experience for the drag queens who are coming up in the world now, then what were we working so hard for? And so, yeah, you can look at it and say like, oh, you know, that's such a different experience than I had. And you can compare and contrast. But at the end of the day, we're all working to make drag um, as powerful and as amazing as it can be and giving everyone maybe the experiences we didn't have because they weren't there yet, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I think is important to remember is that there is the, the world in which RuPaul's Drag Race is kind of defining, you know, quote unquote drag. But the reality of it is it's not. It's just, it's one version of drag. And like you said, there's a whole world of drag out there. And then within that world, like, you know, for everyone listening, uh, they know because they're fans of yours. But I'll say it again. Jinx Monsoon would have been a star with or without drag. Like, you have <laughs> so much talent. I mean, seriously, you have so much talent. And you as Jarek, you are on a trajectory, you know. And and I, I often get, you know, credited with way more than I should because I'm your drag mother. The reality <laughs> yeah. of it is I didn't become your drag mother until well after you were a superstar. And we kind of fell into a maternal um, relationship well, because, you know. Let's talk about that quickly because it's mm-hmm. one last detail of our relationship that I absolutely <laughs> love. But I want to give plenty of time to talk about your extremely impressive body of work. Okay, okay. Um, so, yes, after doing Grey Gardens for years, uh, a natural mother-daughter relationship <laughs> yes. started to form between us. And it was always there without us having to speak about it. And then one summer in Provincetown, we're doing our show along uh, parallel to Bob the Drag Queen doing her show. And you and I and Bob had worked together a bunch. And you and Bob <laughs> had worked together a bunch. And you were also forming a maternal relationship with Bob. And I'll never forget the day I'm sitting there doing my makeup. I I can get cranky sometimes. I might have already been cranky. But I remember sitting there and hearing <laughs> Bob the Drag Queen turn to you and say, Peaches, you're like a drag mom to me. Will you be my drag mom? And the fact that she verbalized it and cut to the chase before I did 
And then I was sitting there like, well, fuck my drag. <laughs> well, and the I funny was, I, <laughs> later I, that our... evening, I was like, well, if she's going to be your drag daughter, I got to be your drag daughter, too. <laughs> I had already considered you my drag daughter. Do you, you remember that? That's like, what I'm saying. I'd it was all, unspoken. You know, to, it was to me, it was like something where, you know, and I think you and I had probably talked about, it, especially in our 20 minute curtain call speeches and, you know, yeah. um, th- that kind of, you know, that kind of thing. I think that Bob do- does want me to be in his her life that way. Um, and I'm really glad for it. But I also think that Bob used that whole situation to um, annoy you. And <laughs> and much like, you know, siblings, you know, she yeah. did quickly turn it into a whole thing, you know, to needle oh, yeah. you. And I you, mean, you totally fell for the bait. Yeah. And, you know, it, yeah. it, it, we, we, don't, we don't need to go into it, but there was, no. there was kind of an exciting little, you know, family drama. It's, yeah. And it was, of course, it was um, silly at the time, but now it's actually a heartwarming memory. And now, you know, now Peaches Christ is my drag mother. Bob the Drag Queen is my drag sister. All these years later, um, I have the I have the little drag family that um, you know so few people are are blessed with. You know, I have such a wonderful um, group of people on my side, and <laughs> and, it, it, and it really is a family. Like your your family merged with my family, you know, and we merged with Bob's family. So there was this sort of like Seattle Portland merger with the San Francisco family. And and then a New York family, and you know, and then it's of like course the people... Ben Delacram is in there too, and you, She's, uh, of course, you and Ben Delacram you know. have become confidants throughout the years. And I know that she went went to you for some mentorship when um, she produced our film because yeah. you have quite the impressive resume. And let's let's um, close the casket on our familial relationships okay. real quick so that we can talk about, because you just have so much work you've done. And um, I think a great place to start is all about evil. And then we can kind of work backwards from there. So for our listeners, All About Evil, if you have not seen it, is a masterpiece. Oh. It it really, really, really is. It's, and I don't mean to, I mean, I now have created my own drag film, so I don't want to knock any other drag films out there. But when I saw All About Evil, it blew my mind that it was a drag queen made film that felt like any big blockbuster you know it felt it didn't feel diy it didn't feel indie it felt like a blockbuster film that you managed to do in a very diy and indie way and um let's talk about how how did that film come to be and uh, okay. it is a masterpiece, so you don't oh, have to sell it. I, I I'll sell it myself. It's everyone should be watching it. It's brilliant. If you like dark comedies, if you like horror, if you like drag, it's all here for you. And amazing performances throughout. So, how did that film happen? Uh, well, first, <laughs> I should say because it'll be the number one question. Yes, there is a plan for it to be streaming this year on a bunch of different platforms. So that is coming soon, thankfully. It's been a long time in the making. Uh, the movie is now over 10 years old, uh, which is surreal to me. Um, 
but yeah, the the whole way that it really got going was because I'd been making these cheap, no budget short films that I never expected to play anywhere other than my midnight movie show called Midnight Mass. And uh, a programmer, a film programmer started programming those shorts. And before I knew it, those shorts were playing all over the world in queer film festivals and horror film festivals, which they really shouldn't have been because they had stolen music and they weren't really finished. And, <laughs> you know, but it, made, it it gave me the confidence to think, that's right. I went to film school. I don't have to just celebrate and show movies. I can make movies. Uh, so I started making you know, more ambitious short films. And while I was doing that, I befriended um, Darren Stein. Uh, this Darren Stein and I became like friends 20 years ago. At the time, he had most recently written and directed a film called Jawbreaker, starring a Rose cult McGowan. Classic. <laughs> cult classic. Cult classic. And Darren and I became like two peas in a pod. We were just like sisters that, that hadn't yet met. And Darren had made a real movie, like a studio movie for Sony. So that really blew me away. And I would pick his brain about, you know, making Jawbreaker and stuff simultaneously maybe i don't know a year or two later mark cuban the billionaire uh uh discovered who i was in in a roundabout <laughs> way and liked what i was doing oh, wait so, mark cuban from shark tank <laughs> yes you didn't know that i never connected those dots before yeah <laughs> Yeah, Mark Cuban from Shark Tank called me on the phone and said, I wanna I wanna create a TV show for you. And I said, sure. And so he did, and it was called Midnight Mass. And we were on this network that Mark Cuban owned at the time called HDNet. And uh Mark created this TV show, and that was a national thing. But because Mark's channel wasn't on one of the big ones, like Comcast or something, it only played in like half the country. So I'd get fan mail from Georgia, but not, you know, Alabama or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and it was, again, very, very validating. And and I said to Darren, oh, my God, you know, I, we have a billionaire who's just invested in a TV show. And Darren's kind of like, well, then finish your feature film script. And I, you know started writing this script that eventually became all about evil and and finished it. And then Darren and I took it to Mark Cuban and he passed on it. <laughs> um, and so it's the thing where I, I tell that part of the story because it's really just like having the belief that you, you, you know, you can do something It all it takes is someone to, well, it's like that Lady Gaga quote, but like, it really is true that because Mark believed in me in that way, because Darren believed in me in that way, it kind of made me believe in myself. And once I had written the script and Mark passed, it was like, well, I have a script. So we just continued to shop it around. And finally we found an investor and, you know, and once we got an investor and we had an investor before we had Natasha Lyonne, um, we had uh, Thomas Decker attached the actor. He was on a TV show at the time called, um, Sarah Connor Chronicles, and we had um, Elvira, Cassandra Peterson attached, um, which was a big coup at the time because she hadn't done a movie out of Elvira drag since Pee-wee's Big Adventure, um, and we had Mink Stoll attached, but we didn't have the lead, the female lead, and um, and so the, the fact that the investor came in without the female lead was kind of a big deal, and then yeah. I had to fi find the female lead. And, and Natasha's and fantastic in the role. I yeah. mean- and and the whole film, like I said, it feels like it feels like any blockbuster studio film. And I think a lot of that is to your clever curation, your um, 
your clever direction. I know how seriously you take your work, which is funny to say about drag work sometimes. You know, like, um, I feel like drag in its nature is so... Um, is it, so silly and sometimes we're taking our stupidest ideas and putting them on stage and and calling it high art but that's that's what's brilliant about drag is that you can have just crazy ideas and and through clever curation and careful direction it can become high art which is how I feel um which is what I feel is true about All About Evil. Um, I also want to point out that when I went to see a screening of All About Evil, I was invited last minute by a group of friends. And I knew it was you doing a midnight mass type thing. So I assumed what I was going to see was the movie All About Eve with you introducing it. And then when the movie started, I mean, there was the pre-show, you had a costume contest. Um, I met you briefly on stage because I just happened to be in horror drag and ran up on stage. And um, and then when the movie began, I was like, this isn't All About Eve. Is this an ad for, for another movie? And then when I realized what I was watching was a brand new movie that you had created, it blew my freaking mind. The the film is just genius. I don't want to give too much away about it because the less you know going in, the better. But it is a true horror film, a true comedy film, and it is infused with the sensibility of a drag queen from start to finish. Do you have a favorite like sentence um, you like to say about this film to to turn anyone who's questioning um, onto watching it? <laughs> Oh, I guess I, I say it's a it's a black comedy gore film, you know, that's a love letter to like the old Vincent Price, you know, uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis movies of the 60s and 70s. And it's a movie about movies, which I love. I love movies about movies. It's it's really fantastic. And there's just countless amazing performances. And you can see the influences on your work throughout. The fact that you had Mink Stoll in it. Um, and Mink Stoll, of course, has been in every John Waters feature film. And it almost feels like um, it almost feels like a rite of passage to work with <laughs> to work with Mink Stoll. Something that you gave me um, our first time working together. Um, Mink Stoll was another um, starring character in our Return to Great Garden show. And for uh, a young queer kid who grew up on whatever John Waters films they had at the Hollywood video, uh, they didn't have the full collection, but I saw a lot of it. And to meet (laughs) Mink Stoll and then work on stage with her, is it felt like such a rite of passage in, in the work that we do. But it wasn't always it wasn't always full feature films for you. You started in um, film school. You talked a lot about um, your shorts. What are some of your favorite projects that are are lesser known? Well, the the birth of Peaches actually was in a film I made in college called Jizz Mopper, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> Jizz Mopper. I mean, you mentioned Mink Stoll, and of course John Waters. I I grew up in Maryland, so you know, growing up. Uh, a kid who wanted to do all of these, you know, weird things and being obsessed with horror movies and haunted houses and, you know, crazy weird stuff. Uh, Hollywood seemed like a million miles away. But when I discovered that John Waters and Divine and Mink Stoll were making movies just up the road, you know, because I really was into introduced to them when Hairspray became a crossover hit. You know, when Hairspray came out, I was in junior high school and Maryland freaked out because 
Maryland had a bona fide movie hit on its hands. You know, it was kind of like uh, John had crossed over. So through the gateway drug of hairspray, I discovered things like pink flamingos and female trouble. And, you know, um, and, and my life was kind of really, truly changed forever because seeing what that group of weirdos could do with movies set me on a path. And my my entrance into drag was through Divine and Frankenfurter. You know, so drag for me has always been infused with a, a love of cult movies. Um, and, uh, well, needless to say, I went to Penn State and... No one there wanted to be John Waters. No, you know, they all wanted, they were all white and straight and male and they all wanted to be Martin Scorsese. You know, that was like the thing. And so when I came along and made a movie like Jizz Mopper, uh, everyone hated it. <laughs> and I did drag in the movie, you know, in, in the mid nineties when, when people didn't, you know, there was no, there wasn't a drag queen, you know, in central Pennsylvania that we could have hired, you know, there was no drag show. Um, that often I look back on that and go like, yeah, that was amazing. At the time, I resented that I didn't have more support, right? But talking to Darren Stein, who went to NYU, he he once said, oh, you would have been one of a thousand people doing drag. You know, and in many ways, Penn State was great for you because you got to like, you know, learn about, you know, adversity and pushing through and, and forcing your vision, ramming your vision down the throats <laughs> of people who didn't want it, you know? Um, so I, I love that. And then moving to San Francisco, you know, making silly short films with my friends for no money, you know, that, that was lovely as well. And of course, back then there was less pressure. So I always tell, you know, young people like enjoy these moments because as you get more successful and there's more money riding on the line, it you know as you well know, Jinx, making a movie uh, is very very hard, stressful, exhausting, brutal work. I don't think people realize how tough it is. So you know when you're in your early days and your you, you, your stakes are lower, enjoy those moments where you're figuring it all <laughs> yeah. out. You know it gets harder. Oh yeah. Um, yes, pressures are higher, expectations are higher. Um, I, I do, I do love my days, um, with Sylvia Ostay for more doing bacon strip every month. It was a different theme and I would just like take the theme and think of the weirdest shit I could do that fit inside the theme. And then before Seattle and Sylvia, um, I was working at uh, a nightclub, um, the escape, which is, it was a all ages queer dance club in Portland, Oregon. And we were doing a very similar thing. Like once a month, we had a big theme show. And I just remember there's something so liberating um, of pouring your heart into a drag show that's going to be seen by like a couple hundred people and then and not documented. You know, I have all those shows on VHS. I don't even know how to watch them now. Uh <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have to you have to get them transferred. I have to do that too. I have tons and tons of old videos sitting in boxes. Yeah. Yeah. I um you mentioned Frankenfurter. I've heard you say before that Rocky Horror Picture Show was like your it gets better video. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I think is so brilliant. I I think, you know, what's really unique about the work that you create is it's not just queer drag queen work it's also misfit work you know you you're obsessed with horror you're obsessed with cult films cult films in their nature are not big 
box office successes. You know, there's stuff that sometimes gets overlooked for many, many years until it has a resurgence down the road. You know, <laughs> is is that something that's been true throughout your work that you've kind of not only had to go against the grain as a queer artist, but go against the grain even within the queer community since your work is kind of um, more niche and more horror and cult oriented than you know, you're not doing top 40s. You're not. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. No, I mean, de- definitely, especially in the early days of Midnight Mass, I would put my posters up in the Castro and there were a lot of like gay men that that would tear them down. But they wouldn't tear down the posters of like the drag queen standing next to like a muscle guy, you know, for, for the for the lip sync show. And but mine would get torn down because it was like peaches, you know, looking like a horror queen next to a zombie or whatever, <laughs> um, you know, because horror and in, in cult stuff, even back then, it, it was not as popular as it is now. It was very niche and it definitely was not seen as queer. Right. So even though we can look back on it now and go like, of course it was queer. There was so much like somehow those worlds were very separate and, um, you know, the, you're right. The audience for my shows, even today, but especially back in those days, it was less about who you you know slept with and whether <laughs> or not you were gay and more about whether or not you were queer. And what I mean by that is like, I put on a very, very queer show. I wouldn't say that it was a gay show, right? And 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 what I mean by that is it had a very queer sensibility. Mink Stoll is a woman who sleeps with men but is totally queer, you know, because this is a heterosexual woman woman who's been in every John Waters feature film, co-starred alongside Divine, uh, you know, has done more punk rock shit than most average gay men. So Mink is queer, right? So I feel like my audience in general were punk rock kind of queer folks who were misfits, like you say, misfits. And when I look back on sort of my whole, even all the way back to being a kid, you know, um, I'm reminded, especially as an adult, more my family sends me photos and stuff. This is kind of who I always was. I was the kid who was writing and directing the shows and 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 kind of the leader of the weirdos in junior high and high school. You know, I wore all black and was, you know, Lead, you know, wrote and directed plays and created haunted houses. So I think in general, Peaches has just been a sort of a continuation of that and maybe a, a bigger version of saying, hey, are you are you fat? Are you a person of color? <laughs> are you are you someone who doesn't fit into mainstream culture, whether it's gay culture or straight culture or whatever? You're you're a freak in these worlds. Then we have a place for you. You know, that's kind of what what I'm where I'm most comfortable I think that's also reflected in things as um, seemingly simple as just the Peaches Christ aesthetic. And you and I, as um, people who have shared dressing rooms for years now, um, I've watched you on your own makeup journey. And, you know, um, you've talked a lot about how you've refined your makeup, but you stay true to the um, clowniness clowniness um <laughs> yeah. I, I was gonna say divine inspired makeup yeah but yeah, yeah you i mean you look fabulous but you are a very specific aesthetic in drag and i have to imagine that your commitment to that aesthetic is uh a, an example of your commitment to creating work 
for those misfits and not ever succumbing to the pressures of maybe mainstream drag. <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I think you might have been there when um, Kegel Cater and Sandra Oh No She Didn't did my face one night and mm-hmm. I, it was in Provincetown. And you wanted to go for glamour. Yeah. And, I, yeah, super and they fan. did the weirdest. Yeah. <laughs> but it was like still very cockatsy. And but, <laughs> but the fact is, is that it didn't look like peaches, right? It did not look like peaches at all. And I posted pictures of it online and people had very negative reactions, which at first I was kind of like, oh, that's that's too bad. But then I realized that's kind of cool. That means that they like this bizarre peaches McDonald's eyebrow, you know, that that (laughs) never, never was good makeup. It never should have really, you know, turned into my signature look, but it is what (laughs) I did uh, for better or worse. Um, you know, and, and okay. So, so this is what I am. And like you say, I have refined it some, and you've seen me on the road playing around with different, different techniques, you know, different ways to do it. Um, but yeah, ultimately there has to be enough recognizable peaches stuff in there for people to enjoy it. And that's just because, you know, I hate the word branded, but you know, it's not branding so much as it's just sort of like people that's how they recognize you. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's recognition. Um, well, I it, think, yeah, yeah, I think makeup has to reflect the person wearing the makeup. And I know that there have been times where I've let another queen do my face. And I might have looked amazing, but I didn't feel like me. And I felt like I couldn't convey me. And I think that's a big part of drag is not worrying about looking like you know, the current trends or using all the current, you know, makeup techniques or the, whatever is popular right now. It really has to be about tr- being true to who you are as the artist and true to the drag persona you've created. And I think you've managed to stay very true to yourself while your career has continued to flourish and and take on new life. And you're doing something, you've been doing it for the last few years, and this year you get to do it again after um, after our year, year and a half of hiatus. Um, but you produce a very large-scale haunted house in the month of October in San Francisco, and this year you're bringing it back. Can you tell us about the Peaches Christ Productions haunts that you do and um, what we can expect this year. Yeah. Uh, So I have another company um, that is separate from Peaches Christ Productions. It's called Into the Dark. And I'm in business in that company with with some other folks. And we create a show in San Francisco called Terror Vault that takes place at the old San Francisco Mint Building. And this year, Terror Vault's actually presenting a whole new show called The Immortal Reckoning. And, uh, (laughs) you know, what sets us aside from like a traditional haunted house, which I love, you know, I grew up going to haunted houses. I love haunted houses, is that this is kind of a mashup of my love of haunted houses with also my, my love or my aspiration to do more immersive theater, you know, like performing in cinemas, I I tried hard to make an immersive experience, you know, especially with things like showgirls and putting lap dancers in the audience and really doing immersive stuff. Um, But but to actually walk people through sets and put them through a storyline feels like, you know, another level. So it is a haunted house, but it's also uh, 
you know, there's a script and there's a story and there are scenes and there's acting. And, um, and this year the immortal reckoning takes it to another level. Like where I've, I've, I'm, I'm attempting to do a, a real through line, a real storyline where you follow the same characters throughout a whole show. So in order to do that, what it means is we have in some cases, one case, we have six actors, the same size playing the same character that way you know, you're going on this journey with the same character. Now, I don't want to give away our secrets, but we're, you know, using a lot of illusion to lead you to believe that it's the same person you're seeing throughout the whole show. But of course it can't be because you're moving through the show and there's a, there's a group behind you moving through the show and a group ahead of you moving through the show. Um, And one of my favorite things ever that I was hoping we would talk about on this podcast was the night that you came and did the show. Yeah, that was um, (laughs) well worth the experience. I I got to see um, the Terror Vault. I got to experience Terror Vault um, a couple years ago with my partner, Michael. We absolutely loved it. It had everything you want because it had drag. It was campy. It was scary. There was some nudity. There was like, you know. Know, like just like everything you could possibly want out of um, an October Halloween themed experience. And then shortly after I got to experience it myself, you called me up and said, um, someone needs the night off. Could you play Madam Lizzie in the brothel setup? And <laughs> I was so excited for this. Because I thought, oh, I'm going to get to step into a new character and let go of Jinx Monsoon for a night and commit to this horror thing. And there were the occasional like person coming through going, is that Jinx Monsoon? And I'm like, please don't ruin the illusion, love. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I really committed to that character. I made her a saucy old um, uh, British uh, madam of a bordello. But I... you. I don't think I've experienced anything quite as exhausting or as vocally taxing yeah, yeah, as yeah. committing to a haunted house. Um, but I loved the experience and I'm very grateful for it. Uh- <laughs> yeah, yeah. People don't realize like, you you know, that that the night that you did it, it was probably like 38 performances back to back, right? Like people don't realize. And I remember saying to you, all the professional performers who do it, like you, uh, the late, great Peggy Legs, um, Rhea Light, like people that really perform a lot that aren't, quote unquote, um, scare actors, you know, who, who you know, uh, have experience working in haunted attractions. The, the performers uh, that have show business, they're always the worst at this. They are always, <laughs> they're always a disaster because they are trained to go out there and give it a hundred percent every time. Right. Yeah. Like that's what we're performed. So if you and I are doing two shows a day, we're just wrecked because we've done two shows, you know, and you know, we're exhausted. We can't do anything. People don't understand. Like we've literally given everything we can, you know, I have nothing left. (laughs) Yeah. But when you're doing 38 shows a night and I remember saying to you, pace yourself, you know, this is really hard. Like, but it was, I remember every time a new group walked into that room, it was Jinx Monsoon on 100 doing, you know, Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Lovett Coming, in a horror lovely. movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it was it was a wonderful experience. I think once was enough um, for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> it really... Um, it really is fantastic work that you do. I suggest anyone who's able to um, make your pilgrimage to San Francisco to see Peaches Christ's haunt, 
terror vault. And then, you know, throughout the year, as as live performance gets to come back into being, um, I hope lots of people will take their sojourns to see um, your Midnight Mass productions. Past performances include Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion with Trixie and Katya, the first Wives Fight Club... <laughs> <laughs> Which is just so brilliant. Ra- with Raja, um, Brooklyn Heights, and Ginger Minge. Uh, Death Becomes Her with myself and Ben De La Creme. Bring It On with Bob and Monet. Mean Gaze with Kimchi, Willem, and Laganja. And just so many more. You... Um, y- you continue to up the game every year for yourself. And and I know that you're now like, uh, you're having to outsource people's inspiration for like, what's a cult film I overlooked? And we've been trying to tuck you into doing Matilda for ages, That's which I true. think is just going to be brilliant with drag queens and, and done in a theater. And I know that they made the musical Matilda, but um, I'm sure yours would have its own special flavor. <laughs> <laughs> it would for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I I would love to do Matilda, and I can't wait to get back. And the first show, hopefully, when we get back on stage, uh, has got to be our Drag Becomes Her show because that was the show that you know was the that was show the show we, we were, were going to do. Yeah, and when was, um yeah when we realized everything was out, and um UK listeners can expect to see us back um in London and Manchester. Yeah. Um, I don't know that all the. T's are crossed and the I's are dotted yet, but we are um, all set to come back this spring. Um, there are plans with, in the works. We can yes, say that. So there's with plans another in the works. Peaches yeah. Price production. I have some questions um, that have nothing to do with your body of work. Are you ready okay. for them? Yes, absolutely. First and foremost, who is your celebrity crush today? Ooh, my celebrity crush today, right now, yeah. this well, moment. I mean, I say that because mine is ever changing. The list is ever growing. There's a lot of people out there that I would gladly give myself to. Who's yours today? <laughs> um, I'll say Ewan McGregor. Which I oh I because know you just watched Halston. <laughs> yes, and I was thinking about I, yes, exactly. And I was thinking about how like as he's gotten older, I've never been, you know, it's never wavered. My crush on him has been the same for twenty years, which I think is kind yeah. of you know. So yeah, I, it is because of Halston. Yeah, um, Michael, my partner, just watched Halston and already does a great Ewan McGregor impression. But now I know that he does a great Ewan McGregor playing an American impression. Uh. And he's a bit obsessed with Halston at the moment. And um, uh, I don't know if I if I ever get to give Michael a gift uh, someday, hopefully I can find a way to one day introduce him to Ewan McGregor and and you oh, yeah. as well. I'll, I'll yeah. include you in that. plan. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, let's see. Who's my celebrity crush today? Oh, I hadn't thought of this yet. I'm just always so horny for so many different people. Um, oh, my, oh, Dipper will look up the actor's name, but I've been watching the show Kim's Convenience, which I've Ah. really enjoyed. I've been binging that show. And, um, there's an actor who plays one of the main characters. Um, the character's name is Jung and he's super fine. And it's pretty much a, it's a plot point that he's, super duper attractive and they're always getting him to take his shirt off on the show. His name is Simu Liu. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So excuse me, Simu, if I butchered your name just now, but you are 
hot. Um, Peaches, <laughs> Peaches, do you consider yourself spiritual? Um, if so, or if not, what is your what is your philosophy on spirituality? What's your worldview that gets you through each day? Hmm. Uh, well, I, I do actually consider myself spiritual. I know um, online and, and as the character, I love to talk about how I'm a proud member of the Satanic Temple, which I am. Um, but I, I feel like my um, Satanism is more political than uh, religious. And, you know, it's because I'm uh, very pro-choice and a feminist and like the work that the Satanic Temple does. So uh, but as far as true spirituality, like what, what's really personal, I guess mostly you maybe consider me a pagan because I believe in the power of nature and the universe. And, you know, with all these reports of aliens visiting the planet, <laughs> um, it's like, OK, yeah, of course. You know, so I don't really believe in necessarily like the religious ideas about, you know, um, God, but I do believe in a higher power. Oh, you're one of those. Oh, I believe in a higher power. No, I'm joking. Um, and Peaches Christ, of course, um, the name comes from your upbringing in Catholic school, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Catholic church, Catholic school. I was raised very, very Catholic. So it was, yeah, um, a thing, especially when I was doing drag in the early days where I wanted to be like, uh, gothic and religiously offensive and, you know, kind of take sort of the the piss, uh, I guess. Um, now it's funny. I, I actually, you know, look back on it all and go, well, I never had a problem with Jesus or the name Christ. <laughs> I mean, like I know it's the, it's the church I have a problem with. So yeah. I, I'm kind of grateful to have this name. I like this name. I mean, I actually like, you know, if you read, read the Bible or whatever, Jesus was a righteous dude. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, and what's your go-to karaoke song, Peaches? Uh, personal Jesus, which of course I mm -hmm. I sing Personal Peaches. Yeah, and I've seen you deliver a really great. Um, uh, oh, uh, was it added up by the Violent Femmes? Yes. Oh my God, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, was fun. That was in Provincetown. Um, yeah. You had a live Space rock Pussy. band backing you, Space Pussy with yeah. Ryan Landry. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite nights. Um, my one of my favorite annual nights in Provincetown is all the performers um, donate their vocal talents to sing with a live rock band and put on um, a, 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 a menagerie, a menage, mm -hmm. a, a mosaic style yeah. rock show. That's really so fun. Cool. Um, and I really loved you got the audience super into it. Violent Femmes strike a chord with me because um, my parents kind of raised me on violent femmes. Wow. <laughs> it was like most of my friends were, their parents were older, so they were raised on the Beatles and right. um, Bob Dylan and John Denver and <laughs> Simon and Garfunkel. I was raised on the Sex Pistols, Violent Femmes, Susie and the Banshees, and oddly enough, um, Patsy Cline and Billie Holiday as well. Those so. <laughs> are all, I mean, those are all really great things to be raised on, though. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I, I'm happy for it. And Have you um, heard um, Trixie Mattel's Violent Femmes cover? Yes, yes. And um, Blister in the Sun, right? Yep. Um, yeah, it's one of my favorite Violent Femmes songs. And of course, Trixie's version is amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Peaches, where can our listeners find you on social media? Is it Peaches Christ across the board? <laughs> kind of. I mean, I'm I'm verified on all those 
things. So uh, <laughs> there, there, there are variations. Like on Instagram, I'm the Peaches Christ because some mm-hmm. bitch had already taken Peaches Christ, you know. Um, but but you can always tell which one is me because of the little blue check mark. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad that you asked because. Um, I, you and I, of course, we had a a podcast project during the pandemic, um, that, you know, folks, um, are bugging us to finish and hopefully someday (laughs) we'll, we'll finish the the third and final episode of our WQUR show. Um, we just have to, it's really, you and I should just tell the listeners it's, it's really Dela's fault, um, (laughs) that, that it's not getting done. (laughs) Well, you know what it was is the pandemic happened and every live entertainer and every drag queen had to find a new way to work. And um, our our radio show was like something we began right at the get go. And then, you know, um, it's been a rough year. We've all had to find our own hustles. We've all had to whore ourselves out in different ways. (laughs) And And the truth is, I think we would have had a third episode, but what we couldn't talk about at the time was that you and Dela smartly with my, you know, um, uh, encouragement, uh, and, and Richard majors encouragement, uh, set out to make a fucking movie. So when people were like, where's the third episode? Where's uh, uh, We couldn't say, um, oh, sorry, they're making a movie because it was kind of a secret, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's actually what really happened. And I think, you know, someday. But the other thing is, each of those episodes, like, you know, th- this, this podcast, I'm sure, is a lot different, right? We were working our asses off. Like it was so much work. It was a lot the, of yeah. work and it was really rewarding work. And I really love what we, what we um, put out into the world. Um, and I do hope to, we almost had, like we had everything ready to write the final script yeah. for the third episode. And um, so We'll do it someday. All it will take is us all setting aside the time, but it does still exist. It can come back. Do not lose hope, listeners. Um, Hopefully we'll get the dramatic conclusions to um, our episodes of WQUR someday. uh, The (laughs) the reason I brought that up uh, was because I wanted to let you know I have a new podcast. So you have a new podcast. Plug it, plug it, plug it. Yes, you have a new podcast. And now I have a new podcast. um, And I'm really excited because, uh, like we just said, I think it's going to be a little bit simpler than WQUR. (laughs) Um, It's a cult movie podcast where uh, I'm going to join my dear friend and creative collaborator, Michael Verratti, um, each episode uh, to celebrate a different cult movie or a cult movie icon or a genre of cult movies. It's called Midnight Mass and we've just launched it. So we have a little trailer out there that you can, you can go and find and subscribe to. So that's the thing I'm kind of really excited to promote. Yes. And I can't wait to listen to it and I can't wait um, to be a guest on it. And we're already working that out. So are, yeah. (laughs) Well, Peaches Christ, I absolutely love you. You are my mother. You are one of my best friends. And you are a genius in the field of drag and film creation. So I hope everyone listening, if you are not already a Peaches fan, go out there, get hooked on her work. Um, she's really she's really one of the luminaries out there. Well, I have to <laughs> say, you know, the feeling is mutual. I um 
Well, we were talking about it the other day via text. I, I, this is the longest in, in over a decade that I've not seen you in person. I know. You know, so it's like been we, really weird. And, you know, I really, I love you. You are, you've been maybe my biggest muse as far as writing <laughs> shows goes. Um, so I can't wait till we get to work together again. And what's funny for the listener is they don't understand that, like, probably this distance, this separation is why we've been so lovey-dovey with each other. Usually we're, you know, ripping each other to shreds and that's you know. just a part of it i felt so bad because i made this weird joke and i don't know if it read but i was on hecklina's podcast and i was giving you so much praise and i felt like oh i have to work in some little jab at peaches or it won't feel like i'm really being honest if i don't uh-huh. work in some jab and then i said something like well you know i i go for subtlety in my work i go for like really nuanced performances whereas um, Peaches is a very direct actor. And, and, and Eklina said, what does that mean? And I was like, she stands and delivers. <laughs> <laughs> wow, but I actually, it's one of my favorite things of your acting style. And um, if I were to give it all the possible praise, your acting style um, is hilarious because you are so good at deadpan. You are better at deadpan than pretty much any other actor I've ever worked with, where you can just deliver the most ridiculous line with a straight face without breaking at all. And it's always the people around you who break on stage because you deliver (laughs) these disgusting, filthy lines that you wrote for yourself with a complete straight face. And if I had to accredit it to anything... Your acting style is very Brechtian, and um, it's very much like um, I am here to put on a show for you, and you are here to receive the show and think about what it means to receive the show. (laughs) And um, in that way, you're you're quite a classical actor. Oh, thank um, you. Thank you. So there you go. There's some praise and a little jab, and I love you so much. Thank you for being my guest today, Peaches Christ, and thank you all for listening to Hijinks here on the Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network. My name is Jinx Monsoon, and we have new episodes every Wednesday, so make sure to search for Hijinks on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You can follow me at the Jinx on Instagram or at Jinx Monsoon everywhere else. And that's J-I-N-K-X. You have to use the K because I paid extra for it, and K is very expensive. I'll see you next Wednesday for some more Hijinks. To hijinks ad free and one day early, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcasts.com slash plus. Make sure to follow at Forever Dog Team and at Mom Podcasts on social and rate and review hijinks five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hijinx is produced by Forever Dog and Moguls of Media, a.k.a. Mom. Hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon. Produced by Big Dipper. Editing and sound design by Will Pitts. Executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey.